One of the things that stops small business owners from creating marketing content consistently is this feeling of being uninspired, of having no idea what to say in the first place. If you can relate to this, you are in good company. So many of us struggle with knowing what our marketing content should actually be about. But I am here to help. I have come up with 100 prompts that you can use to guide your marketing from your social media posts to your emails to your longer form content. I guarantee that these prompts will get you inspired and that you'll have more ideas than you even know what to do with. You can download this list of 100 marketing prompts for free at makinggoodpodcast.com slash 100 prompts. That's makinggoodpodcast.com slash 100-P-R-O-M-P-T-S. Welcome back to Making Good, the podcast for small businesses who want to make a big impact. I'm your host, Lauren Tilden, and this is episode 88. Today's episode is like chicken noodle soup for the creative soul. I felt so calmed by this conversation with creative coach Cynthia Hawk, and I cannot wait to share it with you. We talked all about the inner critic, self-care, tackling creative blocks, and much, much more. One big update before we get into the episode, though, and that is this. Making Good is going pro. This new monthly membership is called Making Good Happen, and it's for those of you who want to take everything you learn here on Making Good to the next level. Making Good Happen is designed to make sure that we're all taking the actions we need to take to move the needle in our businesses. In this monthly membership, we'll work together on creating and implementing a marketing plan that will take your business where you want it to go. A private podcast, accountability, and focused deep work sessions are included. It is going to be so good. For a sneak peek of the details, just DM me the word pro on Instagram. That's at Lauren Tilden, L-A-U-R-E-N-T-I-L-D-E-N, and I'll share some of the inside scoop. Okay, so let's talk about today's episode, which is already one of my favorites. My guest today is Cynthia Hawk. Cynthia coaches heart-centered and creative solopreneurs how to move through imposter syndrome so they can share their unique voice and offerings in the world. She shares simple and calming mindful art activities that can help people struggling with anxiety, stress, self-sabotage, and burnout. Her online classes, teacher trainings, and group coaching program have supported people in 49 countries and growing. In our chat, we discussed what the inner critic is, how it shows up, and how to face it, the concept of incremental improvement, activities and exercises that help us get in touch with our creative process and move through blocks, how to tackle creative blocks in your business, imposter syndrome and the best way to approach it, the power of rituals to spark creativity and momentum, the critical importance of self-care, authentic marketing, and much more. This episode is gold. Here it is. Cynthia, welcome to Making Good. Thanks so much for having me, Lauren. I am very excited for this conversation. As we kind of get ready to get into a really juicy conversation, I think, all about a lot of really important topics like self-care and mindset and creativity. I would love first to hear a little bit about you, if you could share what you do in your business and a little bit about the path that brought you there. Yeah, absolutely. So I coach creative small business owners largely on how to move through creative blocks so they can share their unique voice and offerings out into the world. And I also share really simple and calming mindful art activities. They're largely my practice and I share them 
to help others with anxiety or stress, um, especially with self-sabotage and with creative burnout. And I do all of that through online classes and teacher trainings and group coaching programs. Um, I would say for myself, I this process and journey for me has been a long time coming. But I think probably like a lot of your listeners who are creatives, um, I can be a perfectionist. I can procrastinate. I can self-sabotage. And because of those things over the years, I've just adopted um, different mindfulness and art activities to help me be with a lot of those things and to help me move through them. So a lot of what I share has been through my own personal journey. I love how you said that you didn't say I've picked up activities and processes to help me like get rid of all these feelings of Mm. perfectionism or procrastination said to like live with them and move past or maybe not move past them, but go on anyway. I'm really interested in digging into that specific difference. Like, could you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I'm super passionate about that topic. So I hear a lot of times people say, like, if we talk about our inner critic or feelings of imposter syndrome, I've heard other people talk about eradicating our inner critic or banishing or getting rid of. And instead, I really like the approach of embracing our inner critic. And um, and I love, although it can sound cliche, I love the adage of feel the fear and do it anyway, because mm-hmm. there's been so much research and books and studies and interviews that have shown that that people who have been creating successfully for years and years, it's not that they no longer have fear. It's just that they've learned how to to recognize that fear and not allow it to stop them from creating and showing up in the world. So I like that softer approach of embracing our inner critic. Yeah. I once saw Elizabeth Gilbert speak in Seattle and she said something similar. Um, She was talking about fear as like a kind of presence in any creative work. And she said that she she didn't try to get rid of it or not have it be part of her process. She just tried to make sure it was sitting in the passenger seat and not the driver's seat. So like being willing to be to sit with these things that maybe we wish weren't there, like letting them still be there, the like tough feelings that kind of inhibit us creatively or stop us from doing what we really want to do, letting them still be there, but just not letting them run the show entirely. So I really like that distinction. One thing that I know we're going to talk about is the inner critic. You just mentioned it. So could we dive into this topic a little bit? What is the inner critic? Um, You talked about embracing the inner critic, which I feel like a lot of people are going to be like, ah, why would I do that? How can I do that? Um, Why is the inner critic so common? Like, why is this such a thing that we all face? Yeah, definitely. The inner critic, I largely see it as a part of ourselves that's just trying to keep us safe. And that's largely why I like to focus on trying to embrace the inner critic because it is an internalized voice that is a part of me now. And many times the messaging that's on repeat I don't believe is messaging that comes from me, right? A lot of times we have external criticisms, perhaps from when we're younger or over the years. And then it's like an old tape record. We just start to replay it internally instead. Um, But once the inner critic and that voice is there, it is at that point, I believe, a part of me that's just trying to protect me. It's trying to make sure I don't have another moment of rejection 
or I don't have something else that happens that's hurtful to me. And so instead, I like to um, see if there's a way that I can be with it. Um, and also to even use, I know I love that you brought up the idea notion of fear. And I like to even see when fear comes up in the creative process, that that can potentially be a wonderful signal because maybe that means I'm on the edge of something outside of my comfort zone. And so that's really exciting that I'm starting to kind of test the waters and consider something new and different. Um, so there's so many different ways that, that I think we can reframe it in our own mind to be more comfortable when those voices start to come up that don't feel good because I know my inner critic is really mm -hmm. mean and most people's inner critics can say things to themselves much harsher than you would ever say to anyone else. Um, and I like to just think of it as like a young wounded child, you know, that's kind of throwing a, a fit so they can get their way and feel mm -hmm. better. Um, and instead I like, um, I like the example you mentioned around the the passenger, but also I sort of see it as um, I have a nephew and if he starts to have a tantrum, I'll make sure that I'm with him first, that we can regulate together and have kind of a moment to calm down and be with each other. And then maybe I'll focus on what are the other options. And I do the same thing with my inner critic. So I be with it. I notice it. I help kind of calm some of those thoughts and fears that are bubbling up. And then I can start to move forward um, into some other creative practices. Mm -hmm. I would love to talk about maybe some specific examples. Um, so a lot of my listeners, as we were just talking about are product-based business owners or makers of some kind. Others are, I think probably most listeners would identify as creative in some capacity. Um, but maybe even those who don't like small business owners who sell something, offer something and are just, you know, kind of trying to take things to the next level continuously. What are some of the ways that like inner critic um, might be showing up? Maybe just some specific examples. Yeah, definitely. I'd love to share a brief story if I yeah, can, because um, I think it, I can share some examples with it. So um, before I did my MFA in the arts, I did a one year uh, program in Italy and I was painting and we had deadlines at the end, like halfway through the year where we had to get ready for an exhibit. And at the time I was doing these really large um, paintings and murals with spray paint and oil painting. And I'd had a really six, what I felt to be a successful initial start where I created a lot of work. We came up to like right around holiday break. And when I came back, I was completely stumped, totally frozen, stuck. I felt like that project I had worked on, I kind of ran to the end of that particular course for that project. Um, and my well, my creative well just felt completely empty. And I remember my professor at the time had made the comment to me, she said, strike while the iron is hot. And and I understand what she meant by that of, you know, if you're on a good roll with work to keep rolling with it. But I don't think at the time she realized I felt like I had already drained that. And so instead, what was coming up for me were a lot of thoughts around um, you have no more good ideas. You're not going to get this done in time. The work you create is going to be crap, right? These are like voices that our inner critic can say to us. And so um, I sat with that 
on and off for a while her comment of strike while the iron is hot. And instead, my my inner critic twisted that again and said, um, see, you're not producing anything. You're in the studio. You're not creating. Right. And and that inner critic can be a barrage of uh, internal dialogue that cannot be helpful. And so instead, what I started to explore then, but what I've done much more so in the last 15 years really since then, is um, I started to adopt small ways that I could just have some sort of what I like to call momentum or to move through some of those creative blocks. So I like to use um, the Kaizen Muse method, which really just means incremental improvement. And I also like to use five minute activities to spark momentum in my creative practice. So um, some examples would be uh, five minute mindful art activities where I focus on my breathing first. So I'll notice that internal dialogue that's not helpful in any way, shape or form in this moment for me. I'll just recognize that thought. I'll notice where I'm holding tension in my body. So maybe that's in my chest area, in my upper shoulders. I might feel really warm. I might feel tightness in my jaw. So I just notice those things and even name them or write them down. And then I'll give myself, I'll set a timer and I'll give myself five minutes to make, to create anything. And that that would be whatever your creative practice is. So if you're a sculptor, you make jewelry or you like to draw or paint, you can just give yourself five minutes of playtime where you don't have a deadline, you're not trying to get anything done, you're not trying to accomplish anything. And that five minutes I find is a good barometer because my mind knows I'm not going to create a masterpiece in five minutes. <laughs> that that sort of removes mm-hmm. some of the pressure that I can automatically place on myself. And so what it does, what I've noticed for me and for my students is that it can just help to shift the needle a hair even just that little bit of getting back into a creative practice or, or a material that we really enjoy working with, um, or especially for, for people who create as a creative and product, sometimes we can also get into a rut of creating for other people, creating to then produce and sell. Mm-hmm. And so it's just a way to give ourselves a bit of breathing space, literally noticing our breath and then also breathing space to play um, without any expectation. And so that's one thing that I like to do. And that might be a daily practice. I've done five minute mindful art activities um, multiple times throughout the day when I need it as sort of a reset. Um, and so that's kind of a, a easy way of dipping your toes in. Mm-hmm. You mentioned something, I think you said Kaizen Muse. Could you talk a little bit more about that? I just, I'm not familiar yeah, with that. Yeah, so term. Kaizen Muse, it's um, K-A-I-Z-E-N and then M-U-S-E. So it was originally created in Japan and um, it, it translates and just means incremental improvement. And largely my understanding is um, it came about through car manufacturers and they had a Japanese car manufacturer that had um, different stations where they were having people just focus on one like smaller task and that they were much more efficient and were able to move through things much better. And then it transformed and people started using that uh, with other forms of habits and mindset and then creative habits. So another example that's often talked about is if a runner 
wants to be consistent, they might just set their sneakers out by the front door um, or they might just put their sneakers on for five minutes. And so it's a way of having a task or a habit or a ritual or creative goal feel so small that you can't fail. <laughs> like you remove the barrier. And so what I mm-hmm. mentioned to my students a lot of times is if you're breaking down um, steps, let's say towards a creative project you're doing, if, if you look at that next step, what's that one next step and it feels too overwhelming or daunting and you kind of have that response where you just feel like, Ugh, you know, like where it feels like a barrier to even do mm-hmm. that one next step, then I would say maybe that one next step really is 10 smaller steps. And so I like to just refer to it as a way of how can I make my next step be as manageable and bite-sized as possible so I can feel like I I have some sort of momentum. And then I feel like often it's like a snowball that rolls downhill, you know, or once you get into a flow state, then you can start to kind of create more freely. But it's just a matter of getting that ball moving initially. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, so many things you said that I love. I totally agree with that. Uh, I don't know. For me, I usually think of it as like a, as an overwhelm thing, but a lot of times when I'm, I feel stuck, maybe it's creatively stuck or overwhelmed with the amount of things I have to get done. The thing that actually does end up moving the needle for me and kind of getting me going is to whatever it is that I've been avoiding, Mm -hmm. like break it down into smaller steps because sometimes something can seem simple, but but it's too broad or it's too big somehow to like really understand what the immediate next thing to do is. So the smaller that you can break down your projects into like, you know, uh, set up a login, like the put your name on the top of the paper, whatever it is, like the smallest steps that you can possibly take um, those those often are what kind of get me going personally. And also the idea of momentum. I really love that because for me, I find that in my business, it's all about momentum. It's like, I'll go through these dips of like where I'm not that excited about things or I don't know, like things are going slower or I'm not making as many sales and I'm not feeling as great about things. And then when things pick up, I have so much more energy. I'm doing more, which is like what creates more sales coming. So the question I often ask myself is like, how do you create that momentum? Like, how do you not just wait for momentum to show up, but actually create it yourself? Um, Because yes, like you say, like so much good stuff happens when the ball is rolling down the hill. So um, do you have any other ideas for how to create that business momentum or creative momentum? you know, the, the five minute activities are one idea. And I love that. I'm kind of trying to play around in my head as we talk about like what those, those activities might be for me, but what else would you suggest for people who are relating to this idea of like, yes, when I have the momentum, I'm doing things, everything's going great. Um, I'm making results happen, but it's really hard to get that momentum going. What would you say to people who struggle with that? 
Yeah, I I would first say that they're not alone. I think that that struggle that comes up around noticing our ebb and flow in our creativity uh, is entirely natural and normal. And what I like to focus on is um, moving from resistance to rituals. And so I love that you um, named the fact that when you're, you know, when you're in a good flow and you're creating lots of things, then you also feel better. And it's also good for your business that you, you notice that kind of positive spiraling that happens there. Um, what I like to focus on is rituals. And that's not to say that it's guaranteed that I would automatically be back into that creative state. But what it does is it gives me um, a framework that I can step into where I know I can do certain steps and and just be present and consistent. And over time, eventually, I'll get back into a good flow. So what that looks like for me and what I mentioned for a lot of my students um, is one easy way that I like is if you are a creative where you have a creative space. So let's say um, you are a painter or a drawer. So you have a desk or perhaps an easel you work at. Or if you're a sculptor or jewelry maker and you have your, your suction set up, whatever it is that you typically create, it can be helpful to make sure that your space is maintained in a way where you can just step in as quickly as possible to your practice. And so um, I know it sounds like something really small, but when my art desk, as an example, gets really kind of out of control and it would take me 30 minutes to 60 minutes just to clear a space so I could even begin working, that would, um, it stops me from being more creative consistently. So sometimes um, that ritual is is just having a practice where I can um, keep it so it doesn't kind of, you know, go, go off the sidelines. Um, or if it has done that, then I just give myself a bit of space to kind of bring my creative space back to a place where I can create more easily. The other thing that I like to do is I, um, I enforce as much as I can creative habits with a schedule. And, um, and I use the word enforce again, very softly, like I do with embracing the inner critic. So I have, as an example, like on Mondays from one to three, I have a general idea of what I'll be working on with my creative teaching and business. And I know if I need to adjust that for whatever reason, I have the freedom to do that. But what it does is it it frees up my mind. So when I come to my art desk, as an example, at one o'clock on Monday, I know generally kind of what I'm working on. Um, and I also like to leave some of the work that I've done in my creative practice un, unfinished the last time I'm working on it so I can step back into it a bit more easily. So that's another kind of trick that I use um, that if you've never tried it, it can be really interesting to play around with. Some people I notice um, creatives will do this just by working on multiple projects at the same time. Um, which can be great as long as you don't feel too overwhelmed by too many projects. Um, but having what I what I will often do similar to the five minute mindful art activities with by by using that timer is I just don't allow it um, to come to full completion at the end of the day. So when I'm beginning the next day, I have something I can step back into right away instead of sort of starting from scratch. So that can be something to play around with if you've never done that before. Yeah, that's such a 
um, interesting idea to apply to like running a business or doing creating your product, whatever it is. I've heard of that strategy for writing where, mm-hmm. you know, if you're writing a chapter, uh, leave off one day, like right at the end of a chapter, don't finish it. But like, so it's clear where you start because oftentimes starting, like we're talking about momentum is the hardest part, like getting that ball rolling. So if you leave off one day where it's like, there's already momentum, all you have to do is like sit down and look at the last sentence and then keep going. Um, That's such an interesting thing to apply to running a business or creating your product. So yeah, maybe I'm thinking about different ways this could apply to me. (laughs) I've got a stationary business. So um, yeah, like I design my stuff in watercolors before I scan it and digitize it and all that. So maybe it's like, don't quite finish the watercolor, have it be like almost done. And then the next time you sit down, it's like not so, I don't know, you don't feel like you're starting from scratch. I love that idea. Yeah, I love that you have that other piece that you focus on also. One thing I I like to play around with and mention with my students also is this idea of mindful art experiments or having multiple things that you can play around with. And so that's another um, piece that I focus on to move through creative blocks is especially if I'm working on a bigger project in my creative business, I'll have something, even if it's, again, just that five to 10 minutes um, on the side that I do every day or a few times a week that I feel really excited about and inspired by or curious about. And I have absolutely no idea where it's going. Like that idea of being curious and experimenting and not having a set expectation of where that project is going, I think can for me and what I've noticed with my students is it can just feel really freeing. And oftentimes that is like a little mini playground that can spark ideas. Even if that mini project doesn't go anywhere, it might, you know, spark your next idea that you do in your business later. Mm -hmm. I love that. One thing that's kind of going on in my head right now, as we're talking is thinking about how some of these practices you're talking about creative practices or sort of like mindset practices can be applied to the business side of business. Um, A lot of what we talk about here on the podcast is, is marketing a values-based business. So I think a lot of people, when they think about getting stuck, yes, it could be like designing new products or um, completing client work, whatever it is, but I think also it can be marketing a lot of times is another area where we have so much to create. What's content, email, social media, like blogs, if you do that, a podcast in my case. So I wonder, like, just do you have anything to say about applying some of these practices to business and in addition to like the creative process and the way that we normally think about it? Definitely. Yeah. So I, what I've noticed is that a lot of creatives that I've connected with, there can be this tendency that we feel really comfortable with our craft and with creating. Uh, and sometimes people feel comfortable with the business side and marketing, but most creatives that I've met, um, 
find that to sometimes feel either really tedious or perhaps salesy, or there's this struggle for it to feel as expressive and authentic as we show up in our creative practice. And so I find that a really interesting um, thing that comes up for a lot of creatives. And I'm really... Uh, it's something that I've focused on for years and I thread into a lot of my um, group coaching programs and how I coach creatives because I feel like it's so important. Otherwise, that's we can't really be successful as a small business owner um, if, we, if we're not able to have multiple hats on with that. Um, so the one thing I would say around that is that I've noticed that that similar resistance we can feel in our creative practice can also come up in the business side of things. And so that might be that we know that we need to be creating content, perhaps through a blog or social media or on YouTube or a podcast, but we're not doing it or at least not doing it consistently. Um, it might be that you know, there's, there's so many different ways we can kind of self-sabotage, but it might be that we have too many ideas and we're not sure which ones to pick. So we don't do any of them. It might be that we feel so overwhelmed by the process because it's a new social media platform and there's a lot to set up and we're not comfortable with it, that instead we focus on busy work and do emails or tinker in our studio, right? There's so many ways I think that we can self-sabotage um, our practice and our business. So similar to the five-minute mindful art activities I mentioned, a lot of what I tend to, to focus on with that to gain momentum is having really good systems in place. Uh, again, some sort of creative habit or schedule. If it's something that's entirely new to you, I think it can be helpful to have support. So that might be through a course or a coach or just an accountability group. Um, but also to, to have this, um, I, I work really well under uh, deadlines, so or or visual accountability. So having, let's say, one social media platform that you're focusing on, and letting that community know that you're going to be posting, you know, once a week on Friday, so you have some of that accountability there. Um, but there's so many. I think the main thing that comes up when I hear you ask that question is that it's so different for so many different people. What I find to be really helpful is identifying for yourself what are the resistances, why are they there, and then what are some small steps that you can just start to gain momentum and move forward. So another practice that I do and teach um, that I use to move through that, I call it the inner critic and inner muse writing exercise. So it's a way to converse with yourself back and forth between this resistance and this desire that you have to give back in the world, to do good in the world, to show up consistently and be seen and heard, but also that there's oftentimes fear around those things also. So I have a writing process where you can just kind of converse between the two and it just really helps with clarity and then having those small steps in place so you can start gaining momentum. And I like to just ask the question as well, like what could be my next step? What's the next thing I could do that would only take me five minutes? And I might spend a half hour just brainstorming those five minute tasks. Um, and there's there's so many different ways <laughs> to approach mm -hmm. it. But those are some some of the things I do. I love this idea of the inner critic, inner muse writing exercise. If someone is interested in trying that, like what would that look like practically? 
Yeah. So there's a few different ways that I approach it. Um, one is using your non-dominant hand. So I like to incorporate with a lot of the mindful art activities, um, scribbling exercises or your non-dominant hand, because it's also a way of getting out of your own way and turning off that switch of perfectionism a bit. So mm-hmm. um, in that instance, I would have my... Um, inner critic right with my dominant hand. So perhaps writing out what are some of those um, harsher things that my inner critic is saying to me, or what are some of the resistances that are coming up? And then I might ask that question of what could be my next step and using my non-dominant hand, allowing it to be it's just an invitation that perhaps this is my inner muse or um, if you have a, a mentor you really respect and admire, like what would that mentor say? Um, you could use your non-dominant hand and write some responses. And what I love about that too is that because it's your non-dominant hand, it does a couple of things. It accesses another part of your brain, typically um, more of your right brain hemisphere that is our creative brain side. Um, And then it also, your responses have to be shorter because you're writing Mm -hmm. with your non-dominant hand. It's so hard to write a big paragraph. So it tends to be these simpler, succinct kind of responses. And I don't know about you, Lauren, but I've found my inner guidance when that intuition or voice bubbles up. It's not usually a big, huge monologue. You know, it's usually like five words Mm -hmm. or a sentence of wisdom that's like, maybe you should try this right now. You know, maybe this would feel good right now. Um, So that's one way that I kind of approach it. Uh, But I have, I I teach some different soul collage and, um, and expressive arts practices and they all have writing prompts afterwards that go in depth. Uh, so it's hard to kind of express all of that over the podcast, but that's one example. Yeah. That's a great example. I love that idea. I would love to talk a little bit about imposter syndrome. Um, this is something that's on my mind a lot because I think a lot of us experience imposter syndrome when we're kind of pushing ourselves to do more and like do better or do something bigger than we've done before. And I'm always, especially thinking about it sort of as, I don't know, it's kind of like imposter syndrome versus like making the impact that I want to make. Right. (laughs) Because imposter syndrome, if you listen to it or if you let it run the show, um, can hold us back from doing things that we know would make a positive impact or would help make the kind of change or whatever it is that we're trying to do through our art or through our business. I know that imposter syndrome is something that you talk about a lot in your work. I would love to hear your thoughts on imposter syndrome and any guidance you have for people who are feeling it just to some extent as like why should I be the one who has, is successful doing this or why should people listen to me or any of those kind of those feelings that I'm sure a lot of listeners are familiar with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, what I find so fascinating about imposter syndrome is that there's been so many studies done around it that the it's pervasive. It's so common. And I remember I read um, an interview from Maya Angelou. It was like at the peak of her career. I think she was winning some sort of like lifetime award or something amazing. And, and she had named that she, she was quoted as saying like, 
they're going to find me out any day now mm-hmm. that I'm not actually good at this, you know, which is so mind blowing um, for me when I see that and hear that um, from someone else who is clearly so accomplished at their craft and has been working at it for years and years and years. And, and that's just so common. So I, I approach the imposter syndrome the same way that I approach the inner critic in first just um, taking some time to normalize it, to name this is part of our human experience. I think the same way that um, I also teach uh, meditation and uh, and so oftentimes with meditation, there's this idea that we need to, there's a myth that we need to completely clear our thoughts, that we're only meditating when we have no thoughts. And instead, largely what meditation um, is focused on is noticing when we have thoughts that are distracting us. And then just with non-judgmental awareness, returning back oftentimes to an anchor like your breath or um, or to your body. And so I use mindful art activities the same way that someone would use meditation in that type of practice. So anytime I start to notice that I have thoughts of imposter syndrome or the inner critic, um, then I'll use it as an anchor to simply notice that judgmental thought. And then I like to have you know, instead of focusing on just the breath, I focus on a mindful art activity. So I might do writing or I might actually create a small uh, drawing or painting around that struggle that I'm having. And as I notice those thoughts of feeling like an imposter, of feeling like my work isn't good enough, of feeling like I don't deserve any success that comes my way or that people will find me out, you know, these common thoughts that come up with imposter syndrome that I can perhaps doodle while I'm considering those thoughts for five to 10 minutes. And then as I'm doodling and those thoughts come up, just simply notice it. Even perhaps sometimes smile, like have an internal Mm -hmm. smile of, oh, okay, good. I'm human. Like this is what happens when we're, um, when we're pushing the edge of something that feels really uncomfortable. Like it might be also a really exciting thing because that means I'm, I'm, attempting to be brave to put my work out in the world, which is a beautiful thing. Um, so just noticing any of those thoughts, perhaps reframing it, and then just continuing with that. And and it sounds so simple, and it is simple, and it's very difficult at the same time. And similar to meditation being a practice, I find that that is also a practice. And I think that's why I also named earlier around embracing our inner critic because I don't believe our inner critic thoughts are going away. I don't believe those feelings of imposter syndrome are going away. away. Um, they might quiet, you know, or they might shift or you might feel more confident or comfortable or reframe it over time with practice. Um, and so these these mindful art approaches, they really are just a practice to help us be with those things. And then after that time, perhaps five, 10 minutes of doing that awareness meditation and drawing and scribbling, then I might shift gears and focus on, you know, what I can do to, to move into action. And I think that's why I bring up the word momentum so much because, you know, any of those things, the inner critic or imposter syndrome, the main root of that is feeling stuck, is being stagnant, is not moving, is feeling frozen, right? Is holding back, is being shut down. And so 
anything we can do, whether it's some of the practices I'm mentioning or whether you have your own practice, um, it might just be getting out and walking in nature for 20 minutes and then coming back to your creative work and seeing if something has shifted. Um, Anything we can do to help support ourselves, our self-care, our mental and emotional well-being, uh, to continue to to take those brave steps forward inch by inch, I think is beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So much of, for me, like sort of the personal growth side of running a business has been, or even just living, not even just running a business, has been just learning how to be okay with negative or feelings that you wouldn't have wanted to have um, and not letting them stop you, like just sitting with uncomfortable things and maybe listening to what they have to say, but not making that mean anything about you and not making that really direct how you behave too much. Um, I have talked a lot about maybe not a lot. I've talked about on the podcast how I have OCD and a lot of OCD is around um, doing compulsions so that you don't have to like be uncomfortable, like, you know, flick the lights. I don't particularly have like checking or um, like numbers and ritual based obsessions and compulsions, but people who do it might be about like, if you flip the light seven times, then you can feel comfortable that, you know, whatever it is you think might happen. If you don't, won't happen. And it's all about like preventing that discomfort. Um, or for me, like washing my hands for an especially long time. If I do it until I feel like, okay, my hands are definitely clean. Then I don't have to sit with the discomfort of feeling like, well, maybe they're not like perfectly clean. And that has been you know, just this practice, not that I've totally overcome it, but this practice of learning how to sit with things that are uncomfortable. Um, they've, I don't know, that's been such a test for me in my OCD journey, but also like in business, the kind of these bigger topics of, um, you know, feeling like things have to be perfect or else I can't put them out into the world or, um, yeah, like we've just been talking about imposter syndrome or, Um, inner critic, like whatever it is, this, I think like the biggest thing I've learned and that I'm still constantly learning is all these things and these feelings can still be there and they don't have to stop you from moving. Um, And I think kind of all of these mindset topics really come back to this feeling or this same concept of just like letting yourself sit with hard things or uncomfortable things and still moving. So I love that that's come up so many times in this conversation already. Yeah. And I love also that you named specifically that idea of perfectionism, because I do think that's a core root to what can drive a lot of those, um, inner critic thoughts or feelings of imposter syndrome is that we set a benchmark for ourselves that is not realistic, that we wouldn't hold other people to that same standard. Um, and so finding a way, whatever that way is for you to, to sit with some of that uncomfortableness, but also to perhaps soften so we can move forward a little bit, I think is really lovely. Um, and I often now I, as a recovering perfectionist myself, Mm -hmm. I tend to focus on, um, just shooting for 70%. And typically my 70%, you know, is, is already probably above that anyways. But um, if I'm working on a project, instead of getting it to where my ideal in my mind might be, 
um, I shoot for 70% and then will share. And I know and trust that I can always experiment and make more changes. Um, and, and then what that has done is it's allowed me to create and release and create and release more often, which I think also does improve our work. Um, so it, I think it can help with those feelings of perfectionism. Yeah. Yeah. And as makers or artists or even business owners, like we really never know what's going to resonate with people the most. So I always think of one, one specific greeting card that my brand Kushila has that I literally made in probably, I don't know, four minutes. Like it is, it was the least thought out, like the least intentional or like perfect um, thing that I've probably created for the whole line of all my products. And it's one of the most popular and I put it out there, I think in a rush, cause I needed a birth, it's a birthday card. I needed a birthday card. I didn't have one a couple of years ago. And then like it started selling immediately and sells like it's one of the best sellers, even though for me, if I had let myself be a perfectionist about it, I probably never would have put it out into the world. So I think that to me has just is just evidence that like what's perfect isn't always what means the most to people or impacts them the most or they even like or want the most so um yeah like i love the aiming for 70 percent <laughs> goal i love that story there's also a certain level of like rawness to that you know that I, I don't think sometimes people want something polished and perfect. Like we connect, it's the same way we connect with people. We connect to, you know, our stories of struggle and, um, and with it not being totally perfect. So I love that about your card. <laughs> yeah. I always laugh when it, when it's when I get orders for it and I'm like, hmm, that's not my favorite, but other people do like it. So I just try to learn from it. I've gone over time already of, of where I meant to be, but I do have a couple more things I want to chat with you about. One is self-care. And this is a big topic for small business owners who oftentimes are contending with this like hustle culture of just, you know, and I'm raising my hand as high as I can. Like I fall into this trap too of feeling like you have to work hard to succeed, like really hard and put in a lot of hours and particularly in the beginning. Um, what I know this is a, this is something I think you have some things to say about like what, why is self-care important for artists and also small business owners? Um, and what are some ways that we can practice that and kind of create a routine around it? Mm, I love that question. I feel like it's so important. <laughs> so, um, so I'll say that I think probably like many people, I've had moments where I've burned myself out and where I haven't been tending to my self care and I've paid the price for that. You know, made in some instances that looked like I was sick for a bit afterwards or then I couldn't work for a while afterwards or I completely dropped the ball on a project, right? Like all of these things that, that can happen. And, um, so mainly that was about 20 years ago when I was in college where I was just doing way too much and, um, and didn't have the self care tools. So one thing that I like to do now or that I like to speak about is that I feel really strongly that we 
can give out to the world from a place of our well-being really full. So it's an overflowing out instead of I give to the world and then I take care of myself, you know, on the back end. And um, so I do a few different things just as far as kind of a self-assessment. So I have what's called a life life wheel balance um, worksheet that I go through where I can just check in with myself and see like, where do I feel overextended right now? And, and it looks at different factors, like how am I tending to my self-care with my health? How am I doing that with my connections and relationships? How am I doing that with my overall sleep or with passion projects or with my balance of work or how I feel about finances, right? Like all of these different categories in our life. And I like that uh, it's a way of, instead of doing an overall assessment of like, do I feel completely run down? Which at that point, maybe it's uh, too far, <laughs> you know? Um, instead, I can look at all of these different areas and notice like, oh, I'm actually really missing connection with my friends and family right now because I've been working on this project and, you know, I'm, I'm doing all of these things. And so maybe that's an indicator that I can start to spend a bit more time or carve out some space to do that. Um, so that's something that I do. And I, I, when when I'm really stressed out or when I really have a lot of things going, I use that wheel weekly. And when I don't, when I have more space or when I feel like I'm kind of tending to my self-care more naturally, then I do check-ins like once a month or once a quarter. Um, but I find that when I am busiest is when I need that space to check in a bit more. Um, and I know we were talking earlier a bit about self-sabotage. I, I also have um, a worksheet that talks about eight different ways we self-sabotage and then how we can move through creative blocks. Um, so if that's helpful for yeah. your listeners, both of those things, I can always share that in a link. Um, but yeah, self-care, I think, is, is just so important. Um, and anyone... Who's had moments of burning themselves out, I think has that deeper appreciation for self-care. Um, I also want to say, I think that self-care looks really different for each person also. Like as an example for my mom, self-care would be going and getting a pedicure or gardening, you know, and for me, it might be taking a random excursion to a small old bookstore and looking through art books um, or cloud gazing, right? There's so many different ways that we can kind of feed are well. Um, and so it doesn't have to always look like certain pamperings uh, that people right. talk about. It might be your self-care might be vegging out and watching your favorite show for an hour because that's what you really need to do to de-stress in that moment. So I think just giving ourselves permission um, and as best we can seeing if we can tend to that before we feel burned out um, because you know it's just easier to tend to ourselves then. Right. And I don't know if other people can relate to this, but for me, sometimes self-care feels like more to put on my to-do list. It's like, oh, I already have all these things I want to do. Like, I don't know, like adding these extra tasks that maybe I'm not inclined to do as someone who's kind of go, 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 work, work, work. Um, I don't know. It doesn't feel like fun or exciting to me. Is that just like, yeah, it doesn't need to, but you should still do it. Or what would you say to that? I think that that would just be that 
your definition of self-care in that moment looks and feels differently for you. So I, I, if I was feeling that way in that moment, instead of, you know, brainstorming some of the ideas I just mentioned around going to a bookstore or gardening, um, it might be that you clear your calendar for an evening and, and you do nothing, you have nothing on your calendar and you can just see how you're feeling in the moment. Maybe it's you just resting on your couch and having a candle lit. I mean, I think, um, it it might just be, you know, having a friend come over and have tea with them. Or, um, I think there's so many different ways. And ultimately I love what you just named because I think it highlights that it, it shouldn't feel like a chore. It shouldn't feel like an extra thing that you have to do, even if it's for yourself and for your self-care. I think, I believe good nurturing self-care should feel restorative and supportive. Um, and in some ways, even inspiring. Um, and yeah, so I think that just is whatever, whatever is supporting you in that time. And if, if it's something that you're ever struggling with too, it might be, um, that you journal about it or talk about it with a friend and just give yourself a bit of space, you know, that you don't have to decide right this second, what would feel good as self-care for you also. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's a great answer. Um, okay. The last thing I want to touch on before we head into our wrap up questions. One of the things that we were chatting about talking about on this conversation on this interview is authentically marketing yourself. Um, that is something that is such a huge topic for me and, and for listeners of this podcast, it's something that they like, like whenever I do episodes about kind of like heart centered marketing or, um, these kinds of topics, they are always some of the most popular ones. So just, I know we don't have time to do a whole episode on it, but do you have any tips or practices or just, you know, one, one or two minutes of, of advice? And how, how would you answer this question of how do you authentically market yourself or your creative business? Yeah, I think a lot of the work we talked about about around inner critic and imposter syndrome naturally lends itself to then be able to market yourself more authentically to put yourself and your work in the world in a way where you're not holding back as much or where you're being more transparent and genuine. Um, the main thing, main tip I would say is uh, that documentation, like documenting what you're doing and just sharing that. I find to be one of the most um, lovely ways I've been able to authentically market. And so as an example, if um, I did a, a, a five minute mandala art challenge recently on my Instagram and YouTube, where I, I was just feeling like I needed to do small practices to help me de-stress. And I ended up documenting that daily and sharing it with others. And then we had a conversation together about it. Um, versus it, I, I think it's it's a way we can share parts of our story. Like as I was creating one of my mandalas and sharing it, I then would talk about what came up for me personally that I, I did in my writing practice. And so I think just giving ourselves permission to be like more human in what we're in what we're sharing. And that doesn't mean to to unload or overshare, right? But um, I like the idea of of documentation, and I think that that's really what social media 
was created for initially. You know, that's as small business owners, if we're using social media like Instagram or Facebook or YouTube well, it's largely because we're sharing parts of our world and it's sparking some sort of interest and conversation. And then we're connecting with other people. Um, So I like that idea of documentation. And again, just keeping it really simple. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be polished um, that you can... You can, similar to having that five minute mindful art practice, you could just have, you know, a five minute goal that each day you're going to spend some time on social media and or, you know, just documenting what it is, like what's coming up in your day that you want to share with other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that's great advice. And I think there's this tendency to just want to share the final result. That's like, this probably has to do with perfectionism somehow, but like the very polished final done, beautiful, like everything's ready result. And I have found that like, that's actually like you're saying, that's not necessarily what people are most interested in. Um, like people want to see the process, especially makers, like people want to see the behind the scenes of how you do things or what your office looks like, or, you know, what your morning routine is, like the really kind of what feel like boring details to us are really interesting to people who are interested in our journey and our work. So, um, and then even as business owners, some of the content that I've posted that has been most interesting to people is like, here's the tools I use, or here's a time lapse of me editing a podcast episode. For me, this is like, could not be more boring, but other people are interested in it. So I think just, yeah, the, I like, I like this reminder to share the process, share the documentation, like you say, share the behind the scenes, um, and not just the final, like perfect endpoint. So what a great tip. Okay. So we are going to move into some of the wrap up questions. Um, one is, and we've talked a lot about many answers to this question already, I think, but just in, in one question, how would you answer how you approach doing good through your small business? Mm, I love that question. Uh, So I see a lot of my small business and my teachings as my calling. I see it as how I can serve and give back in the world. And I'm really passionate about helping other people to de-stress and move through their own creative blocks. And I see it as like a ripple effect. You know, if you drop a a pebble in a pond of water, how it ripples outward that um, with each person that feels more at ease or more able to to be with uncomfortability and to still create and share in the world, we're, we're sharing more and more with each other. Um, so I like that visual, um, and, and it helps uplift me in the work I'm doing and to stay consistent. I love that. Yes. And I'm such a big believer in the ripple effect. Like every one person you affect, like they can go and affect however many more people and then they will do it. So Yeah. So especially in creative work, I feel like that's, that's such a powerful force. Um, Mm -hmm. What is one small business that you admire? I really love, so we were talking earlier about authentic marketing a little bit. And um, I've worked with George Cow, who is an authentic marketing coach. And um, I just really like, he's really down to earth and he is 
different enough from me where I can get, you know, these really interesting systems and tools, but he's really heart based. And, um, and so I connect, I can connect with his style and approach to marketing much easier. And so, yeah, I, I definitely have a lot of respect for him as, as my mentor. Amazing. What is a business book that you would recommend or more than one if you want? Mm, I love any books by Seth Godin, um, mm-hmm. especially his Purple Cow and the Dip, uh, which are both marketing books. And then I also really love Atomic Habits by James Clear, which I think would be defined as a business book. I think in a lot of ways, it's also just about mindset and habits. Um, but mm-hmm. that one has been a go-to that I've returned back to many times. Okay. Oh, that's been on my list for so long and I've just been resisting it for some reason. So thank you. For <laughs> it's so good. Push. Um, okay. So where can listeners connect with you online? I know you have a YouTube channel. You mentioned a couple of resources already. Um, the self-care worksheet, the self-sabotage um, exercise, and then there's also uh, mindful art exercises. So any of this, I will link also, but if you want to share where people can find it, um, in case they're not at the show notes page and then just where they can connect with you if they want to learn more about your work and what you have to offer. Yeah. The best place would be on my website at mindfulcreativemuse.com. Um, and then if you scroll down on the bottom of my website, it has links to all of my social media platforms that you mentioned. Um, and I have a, a free resources page as well on my website that'll share more information about mindfulness and art activities. Amazing. Cynthia, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I I already just want to re-listen to everything you had to say and um, try some of the exercises you mentioned. This has been so much fun. And I know, I know that my listeners are going to love it as much as I did. So thank you for taking the time and for sharing with us. Oh, thanks for having me, Lauren. Was anyone else as comforted and inspired by this conversation as I was? Huge, huge thanks to Cynthia for such a refreshing conversation. I am so excited to get doodling. Seriously, though, this episode comes out November 16th, 2021, just a week before Black Friday and the holiday rush that can get nearly all business owners feeling pushed beyond our limits. I hope you're as inspired as I am to find those moments to take care of yourself as a human and a creative, not just a business person. Did you enjoy this episode? I know Cynthia and I would both love to connect with you on Instagram. You can text Cynthia at Mindful Creative Muse and me at Lauren Tilden. That's L-A-U-R-E-N-T-I-L-D-E-N. I would so love for you to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find all of the notes from this episode at makinggoodpodcast.com slash 88. If you're interested in learning more about my small businesses, Good Sheila and Station 7, the links are in the show notes. I would so love to have you in the Facebook community for the podcast. Head to makinggoodpodcast.com slash community to join. And finally, make sure you're following me on Instagram at Lauren Tilden to make sure you get all the details on the pro version of this podcast coming soon, Making Good Happen. If you want a sneak peek on the details, just DM me the word pro and I will send you some of the inside scoop. Thank you for being here and for focusing on making a difference with your small business. Talk to you next time.